From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is a beautiful human, both inside and out. Anton Nimblet will often introduce himself as a Trinidadian living and writing in Brooklyn, New York. But for folks really in the know, Anton is an acclaimed writer, notably for his fictional short stories and poetry. These stories are often set in Trinidad or New York City and reveal the subtle nuances of human life, of African descendants, male or female, gay or straight. Anton is the author of two books, both well-received by critics. The first is Sections of an Orange, and the second and most recent is Now After. His writings are published in several literary journals, including Small Acts, African Voices, and Calabash, a journal of Caribbean arts and letters, as well as in two anthologies, War Diaries and the award-winning anthology Our Caribbean, a gathering of lesbian and gay writing from the Antilles. Anton is founding member of Hot Poets Collective, and when he's not writing, Anton delivers national public lectures and workshops for up-and-coming writers and artists. Welcome, Anton. India, I am so pleased to be chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here. In my introduction, I I mentioned that you are a skilled storyteller who examines the subtle complexities of the human experience, capturing the perfect, the imperfect, the assumed, the seen and unseen. And perhaps that's a byproduct of being an astute people watcher. And that's what I call like really great writers. They are always people watching. They're, They're voyeurs in many ways. And I'm, of course, curious in learning more about your journey, the inspiration and the politics of story telling, as I am sure my audience is too. So are you ready? I'm ready. I'm strapped in and and ready to answer your great questions. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. So Anton, as a writer, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. How did you become interested in becoming a storyteller? So in thinking about storytelling, I kind of think about it in a number of different ways. And and when we had talked sometime before, you had talked about it in terms of different axes, spirituality and emotion and intellect. and, And storytelling is part of my culture, right? And storytelling is a very Trinidadian thing, not exclusively, but it's certainly a rich part of our Trinidadian. Caribbean culture. So my aunts and grandmothers are on the gallery on an afternoon talking to their neighbors and there's storytelling going on. And as a child, I'm listening into that. And then the men are on the street corner and there's that storytelling going on and it's very different. And thinking about this question, I realized that I thought of one as storytelling and the other one as just life. Interesting. So what do you mean by that? Looking at the men on the street corner, it both like fascinated me and it awed 
bothered me a little bit because I, I didn't think I could do that. There was a certain kind of performance that I didn't think I had access to. So then skipping forward, I come to find that here's this way that I can be a storyteller too. I can be a storyteller on the page. And it's different from oral tradition, but it fills a need for me. And it's it's satisfying for me in that way. The satisfaction that you talk about has a lot to do with the promise of what storytelling is and what it means to our human life. I'm glad you asked about storytelling. You know, oftentimes people ask about being a writer, but storytelling, ultimately, I think we're all storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves or the stories we accept from the world have this huge power and influence in our lives. And I very much love the project that you're doing because as I see it, it's so much about being mindful of what the stories we are told, what the stories exist in the world are. You know, the world, the dominant culture, the white world, the colonial world, the global north and all of that stuff. Oh, thanks, Anton. That's my Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, the YouTube channel, and then now this podcast too. We get those stories about Blackness. So I think storytelling is really important in terms of allowing us to re-examine those things and, and tell ourselves and the people we care about, our children and the people to come, to tell them different stories, more impactful, empowering, and more real stories. So I'm glad that you talked about the interesting both performative aspects of storytelling and, and also the natural ways of being, because I think just even cognitively how our brains are built, it's precisely built in a way for perfect uptake of stories, right? Mm. Just how we kind of think and process, how we retell stories, how we interpret stories in a multitude of ways. And even talking about the oral tradition, where very much as part of a lot of the African descendant cultures, like there are always griots who are there to to tell stories, but they're also capturing history. They're yeah. talking about, well, what happened, what could have been some life lessons, but you operate in the space too around fiction. And because you also write poetry, poetry can also be quite imaginative in the same way fiction is. How do you reconcile that when you're writing fiction? That's different than the griot giving an oral history of what happened in the village or some embellishment that the man on the corner might be talking about in terms of what he did last night. What I've learned about my my stories through the years is that fiction is not this thing that I thought about when I was maybe a teenager or a young person reading a novel. I won't be the first person to say that fiction has to be true. And what do you mean by that? By true, I don't mean factual and based on what's going on, but true meaning connected to the truths of life and the truths of what someone is trying to say and someone wants to hear or needs to hear. Okay. And so how does that type of truth telling overlap with the kinds of oral history and stories we would hear from the griot or on the street corner? I think that's the kind of overlap from the tradition of telling a story on the corner. Um, one can embellish, but at the heart of it, there are some truths that in the telling of the story, whether it's on the street corner or the front gallery or in the pages of a short story, they're going to pull the reader in because they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that, I know, you see what you just said there? That, I know that thing, right? I know what that looks like. I know what that sounds like. That kind of truth, I think, is what ties those two things together. And as a storyteller, do you think this type of truth telling applies to both the genre of fiction and poetry? I used to think I couldn't, I wouldn't write poetry because I would see poets talk and I would think that that was a bare telling of their lives and that it was more autobiographical. I've come to learn that poetry might seem more autobiographical than it is, but sometimes the fiction ends up being closer to the writer's life than the poem does. Why do you think that's the case, that people make those assumptions about fiction and, or at least poetry is autobiographical. 
autobiographical? I think people aren't as familiar with poetry. I think we don't have the kinds of, of experiences with poetry that we do with fiction. Poems set up in a, a more direct way. And so it's harder for the reader to make that distinction, to see that if the narrator of a poem is saying, you know, this is my morning, this is my experience, the reader assumes that the I is the writer rather than the narrator. We've been taught, we've learned, the story we've been told is that, you know, when we read a novel or when we read a short story, there's a writer and then there's then their characters. And one of those characters might be a narrator. That's so true, right? Because when I see the eye, for me, sometimes I'm wondering, oh, is this the author's eye? Or is it the eye of this other entity that's telling me what they want to tell me? What you said too about fiction, sometimes fiction is actually more truthful and revealing <laughs> than even nonfiction. How much would you say in percentages your fiction is based on someone in particular <laughs> or real situation. So there's this thing where you said I, I was a, a people watcher and this is one of those it takes one to know one kind of things. I can tell you're guilty of that as well. I am. And so to answer that I would say for me it's a sliding scale and it depends on the story and the work. Okay, so give us an example. So in the newer collection, Now After, because those stories they're based on existing they're writing back to things that are existing in literature. They're in some senses necessarily more removed from me than the stories in sections of an orange. And I'm not going to cop to any of those being anywhere exactly autobiographical because some, some kind of steamy things happen. I'm not copping to none of that. Ooh, <laughs> scandalous. Um, but those stories, and, the, and there's a range in there as well, but those stories, they come closer to things, people that I know, people that kind of were inspirations for, for something that happened or for a character. There's one story now after called Marjorie's Meal, which that's a lot of people's favorite story. Marjorie's Meal is about an older man and his wife. The setting for that story is what's so completely autobiographical for me. In what way? I have a dear friend who has in-laws who live in a place called Point Coco in the deep of South Trinidad. And I'd never, literally never heard of it till I was an adult. And we went there after carnival time. And I was fascinated by the place. And the story so much comes from the place. So the place, you know, 95% real, that's 95% autobiographical. And then other elements of the story on that sliding scale. And you can tell because it's very realistic when you read it. I feel transported there, even though I've never been. All of the different ideas and concepts of, and just references that I've had in other places come alive because I'm like, oh, I make these associations. I see it. I consider that my job as a writer. I consider it very much one of my top jobs to present a story way that when a reader reads it, they're transported into place. And so by my account, your stories touch on a particular theme of identity. And, I, and you know my work, I focus a lot on identity. There's a theme also related to longing and belonging and being able to traverse different spaces and places. You mentioned the story, Marjorie's Meal, which I, I really enjoy a lot. And you talked about it a little bit, but it's about old man's love for his dying wife. Also in your story, Pharrell, about Winston, the the Calypsonian mighty shadow, the bass man. Yeah. Um, also in the story, No One Looking, which is a reimagination of Nabokov's Lolita, but from a male child's perspective, which I thought was very interesting and very creative 
initiative on your part too. So I think about your approach and your approach to creating original and unorthodox remixes of these familiar tropes as found in one of your stories or kind of quasi essay. It's kind of hard. I don't want to give away too much, but it was like <laughs> an article presentation called Argument Against Making Heterosexuality Illegal. Because all these stories, in effect, push the reader to consider their own cultural models of what social life is supposed to be. And all these stories do something very different. But if you think back to your childhood, what or who motivated you to tell these types of stories, these reimaginations, these stories about music and older people in love and longing and belonging? India, India. Uh, good doctor, you're doing some life work here, right? You're making me kind of think through some things. Um, you know, I, I was always very clear on how my childhood kind of enters into the stories. But you're asking me how it kind of formulates the stories or how it kind of defines lenses or something. I know, I know. This is all part of the journey. So the childhood experiences do play into what I write, right? In sections, in the first collection, there's a, a story, the title story sections of an artist. The narrator is talking about his experiences in a barbershop and how he feels about barbershops now. And his telling is about being uncomfortable and odd in the barbershop. In what ways? What that looks like in terms of performance and masculinity and, and that kind of thing. And how are you showing up? I'm, in that story, I'm clear of how like the childhood me is writing back in some ways to that. But in terms of how it amplifies about the decision to focus the story or what to amplify... I had a conversation recently at Bocas Lit Fest, virtually, with a Canadian writer. And we're talking about one of his stories that writes back to a well-known story. And I was, I'm thinking about how my stories write back. And for African descendants, how do you think our stories write back and write back specifically to our own lived experiences? Marginalized people of of any kind of stripe. I feel we're always writing back to something, India. We're writing back to those stories that exist in the world that say who we are, that are inaccurate, that are prejudiced, that are damaging, that are dangerous, or just not, not on the mark, right? I feel like we're writing back to that. Give us an example. You can write back on a, on a large level or you can write back on an intimate level. You know, I think both are valuable. You can write back to society at large or Marjorie's meal is in my my mind writing back to a small piece of life. It's writing back to my parents' marriage, where there were two people who loved each other and loved each other imperfectly and sometimes problematically, and most importantly, didn't always know that they were loving each other. It's not just fantasizing what this could be, but it's writing back to that imperfection and trying to shift the view so that people can see what is there in a marriage that sometimes we don't see. And so when you think about the fact that you as a writer and all the multiplicities of identities that you embody, that you might find that certain stories might be writing to something, what is it that you are making connections to? So like, for example, you grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. And so there's a certain kind of 
lens and orientation that you have that even when you're setting up the story, the kinds of nuances and the subtleties of the characters are reflective of something that's there. Even if you're not from Trinidad and you're from Ludowisi, Georgia, <laughs> right? It somehow resonates. Even for your own social location and identity around being a Black queer writer that you've written about in other places as well or have spoken about too in terms of your experiences. There's something about that that's informing even these stories. Like, so for example, if we were taking a writing class together, I may have reimagined Nabokov's Lolita very different from you, right? Even if we might have certain shared demographics and experiences. I will say that I'm writing from a place of a certain privilege. This is a privilege of time. There's so many people who came before, you know, Zora Neale Hurston's and Langston Hughes's and Earl Lovelace's of the world. They came at a time when they had to more actively fight for the legitimacy of certain voices, the legitimacy of presenting the work as it came to them. That fight is not complete, but I'm at a different place where when I start writing, I didn't have to question that so much. I'm glad you see the stories that way as being true, coming through the lens of this person who has, you know, a foot in Trinidad and another foot in New York, and that the New York comes through clearly. I present the stories as I see them. And think part of the truth that we talked about before has to come from me authentically doing that and having New York flavor if it's a New York story. But that New York flavor is, is different from the person who's migrated from Georgia flavor versus the person who's from DR or Puerto Rico or Hong Kong. It's still going to be a New York story but it's going to be a different New York story. How is it that for you in terms of an identity as a profession of being a writer, how is that received and or supported in terms of the professionalism of your art? I came into writing as an adult after having had done that, you know, proper day job thing. So I didn't have to contend with that as much. But I have to give a shout out to my parents. The writing thing comes from stuff that they've done when I was a kid. Interesting. How so? My parents were the Caribbean parents who were here in Brooklyn and, you know, we're eating Caribbean food at home, but they're taking me to every museum in New York. And we're going to Broadway and we're having conversations over dinner. And of course, those conversations during dinner help to frame the ways in which you think about the world around you and how you choose to tell stories later in life. The writing me could not have come without those things, without that kind of exposure. And so when it came a time that I did start to write, my mother was out there at readings. Every reading in New York, she was there in the audience. My friends know her. That's a beautiful way that they can show you support. I'm lucky in that sense. and But they have an appreciation for it too. And so yeah. I guess that's what you're talking about in terms of there's a privilege. Not to say that, oh, if you don't go to museums and if you're not exposed, then therefore you can't be an effective writer. But when you get to traverse those kinds of spaces and see art in a multitude of ways, when you tap into your own creativity, you can see all the different inspirations because now your mind is opened up to the possibilities of what can be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not privileged in the sense of, of money and exposure to quote unquote, some somebody else's definition of art. So taking me to things started when I was five in pre-K and I was in Trinidad and there was a carnival band and I wanted to play mass in the, in the kiddies carnival band. And my father built the costume for me and my aunt used to take me. Right, right, right. And so these early experiences later on down the line helped to shape your stories. All those stories. This is storytelling. Carnival is storytelling 
for the people. Please explain for the listeners who may not be familiar with carnival and carnival music. Every carnival band tells a story. Even if it's a current band that's feathers and beads, it's telling a story of fantasy. It's telling a story of empowerment for the people who 364 days of the year are working in whatever job that does whatever, that they can now have this moment of storytelling fantasy on Carnival Tuesday. Absolutely. It's all about the fantasy, but then there's a portion of it that is steeped in cultural tradition as well. And that's what makes it fun. And if you're covered in modern Carnival Monday, there's a story that links you back to tradition. So my parents were all up in that too. So goes into the right thing. And hopefully that's part of what you're seeing coming out. What's that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that amplifying queer personhood in fiction is equally important as telling stories across a range of ages and social locations, genders, and so on? Because in many ways, performances of queerness in a good number of your stories are not overt. Not like I'm raising my hand, hey, this is a queer person in the story. It's just it's subtle where you're like, hmm, okay. There are certain signifiers that are in there that you're like, oh, okay, I get it about the character. I think there's this juxtaposition around representation and then also just demonstrating the banality of human relationships. Where do you come out at that? I have to say it again. I'm sorry. It's so nice having this chat with you because I, I appreciate the read and things that you're picking up on. And I'm glad that your audience is getting a chance to hear that from you. I won't say that there was a pivotal moment. And for me, there didn't need to be, right? Because a writer coming to the page, especially a, a marginalized person, is going to be writing back to things. But it was important for me to write all lives. It was also very intentional for me to write lives side by side. And what does it mean to write lives side by side? For me, that kind of reaffirms some equity in a way. And it's sort of like, look, here are these two lives side by side, right? You see the commonalities. Do you see these parallels? You see samenesses here? There's not one that's more important than another. There's not one that's odd and strange and different and has to be explained. Absolutely, because when you begin to explain, you find yourself having to justify one's existence. Yeah, I think it's really important for me in writing not to be doing some work of explaining other or explaining myself. And then I do that same side by side with these works of literature that I'm, I'm writing back to and now after. Give us an example. So there's Nabokov, who, you know, is part of the canon, according to some people. But there are also writers, Caribbean writers that I love. There's Earl Loveless. And, and I, I, I have to situate them side by side because that is pointing again to the fact that there's equity here. There's equality here, at least. Like you said, Shadow, my favorite Caleb Sonia and my favorite Caleb Sol is as important and it's as much a valued part of storytelling and life and truth as Nabokov or Melville or Loveless. That's important. I'm glad that you said that too, because I think on the one hand, when we think about, say, African-descended writers, right? And then if you yourself might identify also as being African-descended and then you come across bodies of work, for some people, they feel, wow, just by having this author writing characters in this way in terms of representation, audiences then feel like, oh, I, I feel seen now. But then at the same time, it's, well, I feel seen, but my life is really no different. And the stories of people that are like me is no different than if you're writing about another person in a different culture, a different ethnicity. And so there's always this tension, I think, you know, when you're from a marginalized 
population that you want to show representation, but then not to do it in such a way where it becomes so niche. Yeah. Right. So I can imagine it's like when you have sections of an orange and even the cover, beautiful black man, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden people associating it with, oh, that's the gay book, a book about queer stories and queer experiences, as opposed to here's a book about human experiences. Yeah, that always having to ask certain questions and it's a, it's a dance or it's a tightrope walk. I think of it as just kind of like an awareness and questioning. And for me, that's what it feels like. While, you know, there's a freedom to write in certain ways that I talk about, but I always want to be aware of what the work is doing and things I can do that sit right with me. Speak more on that. It is about putting lives out there and holding them up to readers and saying these are both of equal value. In some ways, the trick of that is making them mundane, making the experience common and then injecting the uncommon and the, the notable to make the story pop. I hope they pop. <laughs> The road. So you and I share a love for music, Caribbean connections. So in my case, I have Grenada, Trinidad, St. Vincent. And then we also share a connection around art. And in your case, photography. How else does Anton play? Well, the photography, definitely. My Instagram is about that people watching thing. Like most of my photos on there are are New York City people watching. In Trinidad, we call those people macos, right? Yes, (laughs) macos. I know other people in business. Um, part of my art, it's part of my process, but as a Mako. Um, and I miss dancing. There was a time in my life where I went out several nights a week dancing. That's a long past. And then there's another time when I went out every week dancing. And now no one goes out dancing anymore. So what is it about dancing that fueled your fire? On the dance floor, I am not the quiet kid who is stayed and, and controlled. I am some other thing that people don't recognize because it's all play it's ancient spirit it's modern sexual being everybody come together and it's like that thing anything else you do that's more leisure i walk a lot that's very kind of centering and meditative and walking in new york is is great in what ways do you think the way that you play now will change once as a world community we begin to come out post covid do you see any differences in the ways in which you plan to play at the beginning of the, of the COVID moment, this is the first time in my experience that everyone in the world was being exposed to a similar situation, to the same thing in my mind. Of course, it didn't last because in short time, we saw that because of inequities and, and, and differences across the globe and in our country and in our little spheres, it affects everybody differently. But one thing, it, it's allowed us to do some things different. I don't know what the post moment will look like for me, but I know that what I miss. Okay, so tell us, what do you miss? I miss being in community with other writers face-to-face. We did the Bocas Lit Fest, and I've been to Bocas in person twice before and did it twice virtually. And it was a wonderful experience doing it this year, but 
but it just made me miss being in Trinidad with everything that goes with the event. It's not just having the panel discussion and doing that, but it's talking at lunch afterwards. I miss my friends in the Hardcore Collective and us being together and just talking about writing, whether we're just editing together or whether we're doing a gig and reading poems for a group. I miss that stuff. Share a little bit more about the Hot Poets Collective. The Hot Poets Collective came of April one year. April is National Poetry Month. And one of the things that many poets do is something called the 30-30 Challenge, where the goal is to write one poem a day for each day in April. And you can pretty much only do that if you're doing it in partnership with people. There's that accountability and there's that kind of pollination of ideas and that energy infusion from doing it with a group. And how did it get started or who started it? Um, Cheryl Boyce Taylor, who is a Trinidadian poet in New York as well, she organized this great group of people. And at the end of April, we were like, oh my gosh, April is finished. What are we going to do? Because it was really rich and generative. And there's all this sort of behind the scenes that goes on before something gets to the page. And one of those things is, is supporting each other. And the poetry community is wonderful at that. And I'm calling out my fiction people because the poets get it so much better. So it sounds like to me that this was a place for a community. And so then what happened after this month was complete? So at the end of that period, we said, let's continue. And so we we made May an editing and revision month. And then we then began saying, oh, let's do a reading together. And we did readings all across New York City and we continued to write together and we continued to support each other in that way. And who were the folks that were a part of this collective? Yeah, a diverse group of people, male, female, older, younger, just diverse in, in many ways. Then I think it's safe to say that being in community with these different writers of these diverse backgrounds really helped to inform your process as a writer yourself in storytelling. Yeah, it's important the stories we tell. It's important for how the world makes progress, how we make progress as people, as society. It's important for how we make progress on our own personal journeys. And the experience of writing with those other seven writers that were the core founders of that group was very much geared toward that and very much enriched all of that journeying. And what I hear you say too, even talking about the Hot Poets Collective as well, or even how you described how you play, there's definitely a thematic around being in community and of community. Even when you talk about just a bit of the carnival tabanka that you might experience, the, <laughs> the missing of just being in community with folks for Boca, or even just when you talk about dancing in the club and parties and doing all of that, there's something about the human connection. And I see that paralleled in even in your writing. Thank you. Yes. You and I met through community. We we know each other through writing community, but it's it's larger than that. It was it was a deeper community than that. And I'm actually quite a bit of a, a loner in many ways. So those six days in a week or 28 days in a month will find me very quietly at home or walking outside by myself. But I think that actually heightens my appreciation for community. It's the voyeuristic aspect that you talked about earlier. And how does that then translate to your writing? Looking outside and seeing and respecting it and being awed and being amazed by things that happen there. And then when I I'm able to insert myself in it. I value it so much. I think community is one of those things that just keeps us going through the very hard parts of life. And we see how hard life is in this moment. 
When I compare the stories between your two books, Sections of an Orange and then Now After, I don't know about other people, but I definitely feel Now After, it's a little bit more melancholy. Mm. And so I guess my question for you would be, how are you showing up differently in these two works? Like I know that Now After is doing something very different than Sections of an Orange. There's this whole conversation that you're having and reimaginations of established books. Now after is a conversation. But I would presume that as a writer, you're doing something also different and that who you are as a writer is different. How do you see that performance between these two works? No, I can't I can't disagree with that read at all. There, there definitely is a different tone between them. There's a good 10 years between the two collections, right? And so some of the stories were written even more than 10 years apart. So that's a factor. And you're right, the way now after structured writing back, that's part of why I think they feel different. Some of the stories in now after were me imagining lives of gay men who existed before our current time. Oh yes, please speak a little bit more on that. There's there's this way again of privilege. When I when I wrote sections, I didn't feel that I needed to write coming out stories because there had been enough literature and there'd been enough work that I, I didn't feel I had to write coming out stories. So I could write stories about the everyday as we talked about before. But now, as I was writing the stories for now after, one of the questions in my mind is what was life like for a gay man in Trinidad one generation before mine, or uh, a man who was attracted to men and was on the deck of a whaling ship, you know, a hundred years ago in Moby Dick, those kind of questions. So I, I think it's important and necessary to, to hold space for those experiences and to remember them and to honor them, even as we're at a different place in our world and as people. And how then do these stories translate to that melancholy tone? Some of those lies would be different and perhaps melancholy is, is one of the things that would come through. But there's a story there at the end that goes forward to look back and, and maybe that strikes a different tone. And so then how are you different? And yes, India, I am different too. Um, and I'm showing up on the page less kind of wide-eyed about my own relationships, my own relationship to, to love and life than I was when I was the person writing sections. And so, yes, you're a very insightful read and um, you're putting me out there again. And here comes the word <laughs> macro again. Um, but I love it. No, and you're, you're on point. So I'm going to peel back the <laughs> I know I'm going to take, I'm going to remove the membranes of the sections <laughs> in the orange. For me, I, I, I reflect on even just what you just talked about. I can appreciate where you're at with your present mind and you look back. You're not in the same place as you were when you first wrote. I think Sections of an Orange was 2009. Right. Yeah. You're, you are showing up as a different Anton. I mean, it's still you fundamentally, but your perspective on life. And, and I'm sure, too, you might go back and read and then wonder, oh, maybe I could have said it this way. And I sometimes even... And wonder in your present mind if there are particular lessons or if there are particular questions that you are perhaps working through as a writer that you also want the reader to consider themselves. 
working through questions is at the heart of every story I write. I mean, there's a question that starts every story I write. And sometimes they're big questions and sometimes they're smaller questions. The first story in, in the first collection is called Visiting Soldiers, and it's about a woman whose, whose grandson, whom she raised, goes off to war and doesn't come back. And that came from me walking past a recruitment center and in the moment asking myself a question, a, a what-if question. The questions that I ask at this point in my life are necessarily different than the questions I asked 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And there's not a better or a worse point to come at the questions from, you know? It's sort of like this reflects this current moment, and I'm comfortable with it. Are there particular lessons that you learned that you hope to communicate to readers through the stories? Sure. The goal of any particular story is not to teach, right? Any one of my stories is not to teach, but as an aggregate, I want them to be doing some of that work that you talk about. And we talked about me designing the stories to put lives on parallels. And so that actually is one of the big things that I want. Okay. So can you please elaborate? I did a reading at the Harlem Book Fair years and years ago, and it was a small reading and it was, you never know what an audience is going to be. And it was a a nice group of women of a certain age and they could easily have been in church except it was they weren't they were there and I read one of the more sort of like sensual and kind of exciting passages from sections and afterwards a woman came to me and she said you know when you started reading I didn't realize at first that there were two men in the scene and then when I did I kind of paused and I'm paraphrasing her of course right but I kind of paused and then I just kind of leaned back and I was enjoying it so much. Wow, that's a lovely impression of your work. And it it made sense to me at that point. Perhaps that's one of the things I want people to do and whether I'm writing about um, like I say a marriage between a man and a woman and I want people to sort of like pause and look at it differently and say wow these two people loved each other imperfectly but here's the perfect moment of love or if it's looking at a gay man and saying wow this thing that he wants that he feels is kind of not different from what I feel Act 3 Where We Land So, Anton, this is the time in the show where I'm all for supporting folks to give a plug on their latest project, what it is that they're into, what they're up to, and where people can find you and find your work. Again, you're doing wonderful work here, and that's one of those aspects of of community and work that people sometimes overlook. So thank you for that. So it's easy to find me because I'm lucky to have one of those names that's easy to Google, right? So if you Google me, you'll find me. My publisher for both books is People Tree Press, and they do amazing things. They have a wonderful catalog of award-winning stuff, but you can find my page at peopletreepress.com. And you can find my Instagram is Anton on Watch. Um, And that's my photography. And I get as much support from that as anything else. And what are you currently working on? I'm working on a novel, which I resisted for a long time, but I'm excited to write that. It's set in New York. I talked about setting in New York. And it follows a man through about 30 years of his life and interweaves with performance poetry, which again, I'm not a performance poet and I I can pretend to be one in this novel, and activism and decades of activism in New York and what that can do to a person. So I'm excited to to be writing that. Why a novel? 
Why now? So there's this way in which as soon as one publishes a collection of stories, everyone asks, when are you writing the novel? And there was a, there were moments where I felt pressure to do that. And then I felt I relieved myself of that pressure um, in several different ways. And says, what I write is important and it's what I want to write. And this is my contribution and I'm fine with that. And so I wrote the second collection and, and perhaps in letting go of the pressure to do the novel, the idea of this particular story came. And what's the inspiration for the story or better yet, how did the story plot come about? Actually started with me writing a short piece for Bocas two years ago for a particular panel. And that initial piece, when I went back and looked at it, had questions in it. Absolutely, there were questions. Now, what kinds of questions? There were questions that were unanswered, questions that raised in there. And I thought, when I started thinking through those questions, that connected me back to the novel. And when can we expect to put our hands on this novel. The novel should be coming relatively soon. The publishing world is strange, so and the writer's life is strange, so it's all relative, but the novel is coming. Well, we can't wait to be able to read it and yeah. to see all of the reimaginations of the autobiography and not. <laughs> sure, and and I hope folks go out and read read the things that are there now. Sections is there, and now, and after, now after is there, and I'm proud of both of those, and I I'm proud to chat with you about them. Thank you so much. And yes, both collections are excellent. And so when you read it and appreciate the lessons and the message behind the stories and the kinds of questions that I think come up for readers, then it's no surprise how well received by so many critics and reviewers. So these are some great works. Thank you so much, Anton, for being here on Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. It's my pleasure and my honor to have been on part of this like wonderful journey that you're taking us on and we appreciate that thanks for including me there you have it the journey isn't over but this episode is until next time peace